Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. I'm Simon Thompson. No Peter White this week. He's away choosing uh, curtains and soft furnishings, apparently. And welcome back to Harry Morgan. Hello, everyone. And Andres Wantanar. Yeah, hello. Hi. And this week uh, in Rethink Energy, it's um, normally I, I was thinking we're, we're a business paper, a business publication for renewables. But wow, there's a lot of geopolitics and big economics. So talk us through that. Harry, you wrote a piece about um, the uh, International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think it's always bound to be, um, as an energy publication, we're always bound to get slightly uh, embroiled within geopolitics and climate change ahead of the COP26 conference. Um, it's always going to be that sort of thing. Um, and I think the IEA is very similar. Uh, I mean, they released their World Energy Outlook this week, which generally is one of the most influential pieces of energy documentation you get within a year. Mm-hmm. Um, here at Rethink Energy, we're often pretty well known for criticising it. Um, mm. And I think, I mean, the, the publication itself is notorious for constantly changing its tune in terms of renewables. It often underpredicts renewables, uh, famously. I mean, it's updated its solar forecast pretty much every year since it started. Uh, it always overpredicts how long oil is going to last. Um, it, um, they normally saying that there's going to be no peak oil. I think that's something that's actually changed this year. Mm. Um, and it, that really lines up with the fact that it was actually set up in 1973 to actually guide the oil industry through its oil crisis. So um, it's very much trying to shift from basically being the International Oil Agency to being the International Energy Agency. Um, And that's what we've really seen through this year's World Energy Outlook. Rather than being a forecast this year, what they've really done is found their role in showing the gulf between where we'll get to using current policies and where we need to get to get to net zero by 2050 and highlighting that this 1.5 degrees of climate change really is a a hard limit that we need to be aiming for rather than sort of an optional an optional thing that we can go for so what they've done is yeah they've got two scenarios a stated policy scenario and a net zero by 2050 scenario Uh, and obviously this is very much ahead of cop 26 and sort of hoping to instigate those policies through those discussions that will then lead us to sort of accelerating this so um, it really acknowledges that we're in a transition to a new energy economy where uh, renewables are offering this equitable future, uh, both in terms of environmental protection and then economic growth. So do you think it, it's an unbiased, it is now an unbiased organisation? Do you think in the future any other outlook would be renewables led? Yeah, so, I mean, it's still very much a work to do. Um, there's still a few things in there that we we would really pick at. Um, they've, they're still picking blue hydrogen as a, as a sort of a key role, for example, and we've written a lot about that over the past few weeks in terms of it, the upstream uh, upstream methane emissions from that and how that will actually be a net negative to the to the environment rather than uh, through the shift from grey hydrogen to green hydrogen. Uh, and it's, it's still saying things like uh, by 2050, uh, only two thirds of renewable come from uh, two thirds of energy will come from renewables. So I think there's a lot of places where it probably is falling short of the truth, but it's definitely really started to notice that we are in this sort of rapid transition and in this decade of disruption, as they're calling it. Um, through the 20 uh, through the 2020s and there's there's a, a new term that is uh, that i haven't come across before and that's measurement in gigatons of co2 output it's, well, just, that's uh, just, it's just a billion tons isn't it yeah exactly okay okay and uh it's 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 just a good way of um framing and making the numbers seem a little more easy to understand mm-hmm. actually that was one of the things that um i really liked from the iea personally was that they've taken the shift from using barrels of oil equivalent 
uh, and starting ah. to talk about energy in terms of kilowatt hours and megawatt hours. Um, I think that's a really important step. Well, it's actually not that, that important in terms of the energy transition itself. It's, it's a very important rhetoric in terms of placing um, things like electricity at the centre of the energy sector rather than oil. Uh, I think when you're always comparing things to oil, I think that tends to be the case. Do you think they've hired uh, new staff? I think they probably have. Um, and I think it's interesting. We were talking to um, some of our friends at Carbon Tracker this week and they were saying once you get some new management on an old product, it's easy to sell it once you sort of steer in a different direction. And that is, yeah, I think what we've seen here. And I think it is going to become a much more uh, realistic forecast. I think we're going to find it much harder to criticise in the future. I think what we really hope is that other um, energy organisations start to take the same tack. I mean, we've been using things like gigawatt hours um, since we started, but there's a lot of them out there that still very much use barrels of oil equivalent. And talking of barrels of oil, Harry, you, you've written a piece about, I know it's, we, it's, it's on everybody's mind, but the, the price of gas and oil in relation to, we're a re- renewables business um, research service. So talk us through the price of oil in relation to renewables. So, yeah, I mean, so oil prices, um, as everyone will be aware, have been rising pretty significantly over the past past few weeks, well, a few months, really. Um, I think we're at something close to $85 per barrel if you're talking about Brent crude, which is pretty much close to three-year highs. I think we might have actually pushed past it uh, uh, briefly. The reason behind this largely is uh, OPEC, which is who I think they're responsible for around 40% of global trade, but they're definitely sort of the largest outfit in terms of defining the market. Um, so OPEC enforced supply cuts uh, in April last year um, when the sort of prices of oil fell around 60%, which meant that across the member states, around 10 million barrels of oil was sort of taken from the market. So the prices sort of slowly went back up. And as these prices have risen, um, they brought oil back to the market pretty steadily. Uh, I think we're now, well, we're 10 million barrels below sort of the 100 million barrel benchmark. We're now around 5.7 million barrels below that. So they're gradually increasing at around 400,000 barrels each month uh, through to December. Problem is, is that the prices keep rising despite this. So, I mean, obviously we have $85 per barrel now um, and prices at the pump are rising consumers. Uh, and I mean, some were expecting that we've had the sudden injection slightly more into the market from OPEC, but that's not been delivered um, as OPEC is sort of trying to balance long term prices, um, despite p- people from the White House saying, OK, we actually need this more, this oil now. So uh, to sort of that, yeah, to balance the prices for consumers. Yeah. So it's less it's less dramatic, I think, than the gas and coal price rises. But that's because oil was already higher from the OPEC cuts earlier, I guess. Yes, it's definitely it's definitely. Um, is definitely less extreme than the coal and the gas price hikes we've seen, but is arguably slightly more influential. I mean, there's a lot of countries that are a lot more dependent on oil for their economy than there are countries that are dependent on gas. Yeah. Uh, they're slightly interlinked as well. I mean, obviously, the demand in gas rising has meant that price of gas oil has gone through the roof. And there's a few uh, places where you can actually generate electricity from oil where they've shifted from gas to oil for generating mm. electricity. I think the, the general the general thing from OPEC trying to stabilise the market is that it means that people who buy oil as a financial commodity are overbuying. I mean, there's um, several analysts out there who think that oil, even if you're looking at the supply and demand um, parameters, that there's still sort of eight to ten dollars overvalued. The oil, the people who will probably short oil or people that will sell their oil uh, are sort of waiting for that sort of indicator that the market is going to collapse. And th- this this normally happens when oil spending reaches around five percent of global GDP. 
and we're only at around three percent today so that i mean that infers that prices could reach 130 dollars per barrel right which i don't think anyone is thinking is going to be realistic but do, do you think that these price rises are affecting consumer or you know joe the, the average joe filling up his car consumers I did notice and, them higher yeah. at the local uh, petrol station in wales so oh, okay so there's okay. that <laughs> all right yeah. okay so yeah. do, but but people are um you know i'm talking about ordinary people not uh, oil traders buying and selling and so on and also ordinary people's perception of renewables as well we're, we're, yeah. we're in we're biting in the energy transition and now real people are starting to feel this yes 100 percent. i think this is you, you're completely right um i think i mean firstly yes it is it is affecting um local um sort of local pumps i mean obviously a lot of oil trade on futures contracts so there'll be this is worldwide harry yeah and this is worldwide and it will and this will there will be a delay on this impacting all the consumers but generally yeah it will be seen um i think more than the immediate impact that we're seeing i think the what we'll see and especially through the gas price hikes as well is that consumers really start to appreciate that the volatility and, and the unreliability if you like that's been used as an argument to dispel things like wind and solar power over the past mm. 20 30 years is something that apply, it will very much apply to the oil and gas market as well and how, i think how, how would that be well i think once you start to see that renewable energy can provide sort of 24 7 power um, and the prices start to stabilize um when you've got a large amount of um wind and battery or solar and battery on the grid i think that's something that we'll see i mean we've seen in china for instance we've seen uh, renewable energy stocks go through the roof and um, through their sort of coal uh, crisis but and I think while you assume that um, oil and gas are, is a constant supply, it also de- depends on how much is being traded with other markets. I mean, a lot of the European gas hike is due to China actually wanting more gas. I mean, prices in Europe are going up. So Because basically renewables are flawed on the grid because you need all of this extra transmission and storage. But once you do set it up, it's just there. You don't have to have a, an import uh, supply. Yeah, but, exactly. And it's and and generally renewables can be produced much more locally. I mean, you're not going to have to rely on Russian imports across Europe for electricity, for example. So I think there's a much more equitable approach that you can take to a renewable energy market than you can to a fossil fuel market. Um, and I think that, may, that makes the, it makes the geopolitics really interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of a lot of research being done around that. So I'm going to ask the age-old question: What happens when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow? Yeah, so I mean we've got batteries. I think that's um, you know, something that obviously it's it's entering the market now um, at a huge scale, and we've we've got forecasts out for this. So batteries don't really help much with like a a fortnight-long weakness in wind and solar conditions, though. That that's more of a job for hydrogen, right? Yes, you're, I mean, you're right. And I think hydrogen is something that will um, start balancing the market in the, in the long term. But the, these you'd be surprised at how rare these instances of no wind or no solar really are. Um, and there will be instances of trade, um, energy trading. I think this is something to do with geopolitics as well, is that in Europe, for example, we'll probably see a lot of solar power during the summer flowing north into northern Europe and a lot of wind power during the winter, which is typically windier in Europe, flowing south. And I think hydrogen is going to be a really good way of both transmitting that and balancing that during these period of times where it's not necessarily having the output that it's expected of it. Obviously, these battery storage 
systems that while well, they're currently being used very much to balance the grid on a sort of short-term basis as we've got a larger and larger capacity we'll start to see these systems used more and more for for longer duration uh, instances of outage so it'll be it's i mean it'll go from a few hours of, of no output to a few days and there's no reason why batteries can't do that um it's just that they're not necessarily economically suited when you compare it to to hydrogen or other types of storage and all the while, Andres, China is also suffering these these shortages. So what's happening in, in China um, this week? It's, it's just been the, the golden week, the, the national holiday, hasn't it, last week? But, uh, yeah, it was the first start of this month. But demand has skyrocketed for coal. Discuss. Well, yes, yeah, I, I think uh, the real issue, you know, it, it's... It's actually quite misleading to say that there's a coal shortage in China because, yes, there is, but it's purely induced, induced by there being so much electricity demand. Like uh, since, in the, since the start of the year, the first eight months, the power demand increased by 13.8%. Um, it's part of this. I think it's probably in large part due to Western stimulus packages because a lot of that gets spent on goods which are made in China. So all of the industry uh, is getting brought back online very, very much so. And I mean, we've we've talked before a little bit about what's happening. You know, you've got the people up in the northeast who are even the even the domestic power supply is interrupted. But across China, uh, it could be a whole quarter uh, of the year that has interrupted supply to the industries with uh, energy intensive industries being told they can't run for a whole month in some places, that kind of thing. Um, But the other issue, weirdly, is that the National Development and Reform Commission is actually pressing ahead with um, these energy consumption and energy efficiency targets. And the reason they're very important is because usually China doesn't actually run its coal plants very intensively. So under the current increase in demand, it wants to use them more as a proportion of its energy. But that runs afoul of these energy efficiency targets of how much uh, do you emit per unit of energy. And the NDRC has actually been enforcing those targets, even if it you know it limits the ability of industries to actually run factories, which I find quite remarkable. Mm. Do, you, do you think this is something that we're going to see more and more as China uh, aim for their tw- uh, net zero target? Do you think that they're going to take this sort of bullish approach to net zero, whatever cost? It's a good question. I, mean, I find it quite, uh, quite strange. I, can't, I mean, I find it quite remarkable to uh, allow short term power cuts in the interests of these targets. But um, they have done it before, even in, you know, even in these uh, coastal provinces which are wealthier which maybe in some ways you could think of as being more privileged or the the, the source of more of the upper class they, they just go right ahead Zhejiang the place that's just south of Shanghai they have power cuts there sometimes they limit the power supply to the uh, domestic population even no and sure I mean so I mean um, we've read this in the article Andrews. I mean this is actually one of the first articles we've written that we've written together um <laughs> is that, I mean, they've got three options really, haven't they? They've got, you can either allow the prices to rise and then use more coal within that for electricity. Uh, but obviously that's inflation then, which is going to weaken China's point, um, standpoint in terms of the global economy. You can either, and, or you can accept, you can accept the problems that are going on, less coal, less economic development. So, I mean, that's two options there that very much go against what China has been doing for the past sort of 20, 30 years. Mm. Or they can put domestic coal into overdrive. Um, and I mean, ahead of COP26, mm. you can't get away with that. So I think the, the only real option is that China are going to take on, um, are going to have to take on several years of, of slower economic growth. Well, they are they are burning more coal than usual, but I think. But um, 
and they are having to do things like uh, talk to a lot of unusual coal suppliers like uh, Li Keqiang. I probably didn't say that quite right. Uh, who I think is I think he's the second most powerful politician in in China is talking to Mongolia and some other country I don't remember. And Mongolia is very very small. It's only three million people. So it shows how important the the coal supply is to them right now. I, I guess they, they simply will um, Im- impact their own economic development a little bit for these uh, climate targets, which is not what they usually do. Mm. Well, um, we, we can watch this space. Harry, you're off to COP26 in two weeks time to Glasgow. Yes, I think I'm, I mean, I'm very excited to go. It's, um, it is, it's my first energy event back since um, obviously everything yeah. kicked off. I think my last one was battery storage event in London, which was yeah nearly a year and a half ago. But yeah, excited to go there. I think it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what comes out of the discussions. I think there will be a lot. I'm worried that there's going to be a lot of conversations around this energy crisis, if I'm honest. I think there will be, it can, it can be used as an excuse to keep natural gas going. It can be an excuse to push in more nuclear, which, I mean, isn't necessarily the worst thing, um, but it just isn't an economic option um, in terms of when you compare it to wind and solar plus battery. Um, and I, and we've, we've written an article this week on how pink hydrogen, which is basically the same as green hydrogen, but driven by nuclear power, um, is always going to be significantly uh, undercut by one form of production or the other. I think the the biggest thing that I'm hoping that we see from COP26, I think it's probably a little bit of wishful thinking, is that we see some sort of agreement on a global price, a global minimum price for carbon emissions. Um, I mean, the US, it's, the US is far overdue actually establishing its own carbon market and actually taxing the use uh, the emissions of carbon within that country but i mean the us is always anti-taxes so it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they they buckle on that front but i mean if we saw an international consensus that saw sort of 50 countries or so agree to a minimum price of ten dollars per ton of carbon emissions um i think that would be a real win and it would be a real good a real way of supplementing things like the, uh, the carbon border tax mechanisms that have been implemented are going to be implemented implemented by the European Union. 